Happy Monday, Liberty Lovers. And before we get into today's episode, today's awesome interview, I've got to tell you something about today's sponsor. It's a heck of a tie-in to today's episode, uh, but today we are sponsored by the Expat Money Show with Mikkel Thorup. Mikkel Thorup has lived overseas. He left his home. He left his home of Canada as a teenager, and for over 20 years, he has lived overseas, uh, been an entrepreneur, started various businesses, and he knows everything, absolutely everything everything there is to know about being an expat, about obtaining a second passport, uh, about overseas investments. Uh, If you are considering any of what I've listed, and if you're not, frankly, you are out of your damn mind uh, because you need to have a backup plan in life. And let's be honest, the way things are going right now in the United States, you're really, really going to want a backup plan, whether that's the ability to flee the country or just to have some diversity in your finances. You absolutely must check out the Expat Money Show with Mikkel Thorup. While you're checking that out, come on over join the conversation in the expat money forum you can find that over at expatmoneyforum.com we need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools but the inspiration to break free from the system welcome to the flagship lions of liberty podcast your weekly dose of education inspiration and real world application from the top minds in the liberty movement if you want liberty we need to be My guest today has accomplished more than I could possibly do justice to in this introduction, but to touch on a few notable achievements, he is one of the most experienced designers of highly successful, innovative school programs in the United States. He's also the founder of Expanse Online, uh, an innovative virtual secondary school. He is the author of The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice. And he also coined the term Startup Cities at a 2013 Voice and Exit talk, which has led to a very vibrant Startup Cities movement around the world. We're going to be exploring that topic a bit here today. But first, I am very pleased to welcome Michael Strong. Michael, are you ready to roar? (laughs) Now that's a roar. That's the kind of roar we like. (laughs) Thought I'd give it a try. That was a good one. That was a good one. Uh, So, Michael, you know, there's a lot we want to get into. I I do want to touch on free cities, but I want to get to know you a little bit more first and kind of where you come from. And uh, uh, maybe we can start off by diving into the topic of stoicism a little bit, because I I know that's something that guides you in in just about every aspect in life. Uh, So maybe you can get into how you first became exposed to that concept and uh, kind of take things from there. Sure. Well, I would say I'm I'm a philosopher by by nature. I love... uh, the true, the good, and the noble, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so I've read a lot of philosophy. I think about ideas, not an accident. My first book was The Habit of Thought, thinking about things all the time. And I think once one becomes a little bit reflective and intentional about life, um, there you have to roll with the punches, to use a casual phrase. That is, um, if one wants to you know, be happy and get something done, you can't be buffeted by every emotion that you know, goes by all the time. And so over time, I've been interested in a a lot of different um, philosophies and modalities, including Stoicism. I'm also interested in Buddhism. I don't pretend to be a deep scholar of both, but in both, I look at them as different technologies for uh, being calm and serene in the face of whatever happens. And just to kind of connect it to entrepreneurship, one of my favorite descriptions of an entrepreneur 
entrepreneurship is getting punched in the gut every day because <laughs> things go wrong. You try to make stuff work. You try to build stuff. Every day, something goes wrong. And if you get all emotional about it, you're never going to be productive. So you just, no, oh, shit happened today. Shit happened today. And just keep going. So I think the kind of serenity, but also the appreciation of daily life. Marcus Aurelius, my favorite Stoic writer, talks about looking at the texture of bread. And I think part of you know being present, being uh, grateful, and being appreciative of the world is how to be happy. And who doesn't want to be happy? Yeah, and that is a, that's a, I really like how you put this, how you phrase this as as technologies. They're, they're essentially tools we can use. You can choose not to sort of uh, try to lead a stoic life. You can choose not to do practices, whether it's, you know, Buddhism. Uh, for me in the last year, it's been yoga. I mean, doing yoga has really, truly changed my life and, and in ways I never imagined. I, I kind of looked at it at first as just something that would be good for my body and good exercise. Um, it's so much more than that. At least it has been for me. It's allowed me to be more stoic in life. It's allowed me to take things that would normally distract me or cause me just my emotions to go out just go off the rails and actually to stay focused. And it's, it's, it's really just incredible. So uh, no matter what, what practices in your life, you can add that can help you find that sort of calm and help you sort of brush all the noise aside, especially nowadays, we have so much noise in our lives. And I am absolutely guilty of this, the phone notifications. Uh, there's so much information coming at us. And all of it can trigger emotions in us. I mean, it's 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 hard to spend 10 minutes on Twitter without feeling emotional about something, without almost sensing, sensing I can start to lose myself in the emotion and um, having a sort of a stoic mindset and uh, knowing to just, you know, finding ways that you can learn to stay focused on the task at hand and on the greater task of life and enjoying life and staying present is just huge. So, um, yeah, I mean, anything more you want to say on that? Uh, I don't have a specific question, but I think this is a great topic to dive into. Yeah, I know. I, I, again, I've, I've been Tai Chi and yoga and meditation, all kinds of things. I would say one of the things I learned from a Buddhist, you know, now probably 20 years ago is even then, as long ago as 20 years ago, they said, um, there should be times of the day when you, do, when you don't check your email. And the time was shocked. I was like, what's the big deal of checking my email? I can check my email whenever I want. Um, but now I'm very clean about, you know, after dinner, uh, you know, at some point, no more electronics. And in the morning, I like to have my coffee before I connect with electronics. And so, again, it's all about being peace of mind. I think there are these, um, all of these different ways in which people make themselves unhappy. Um, and, you know, kind of just going back to the school piece, one of my goals, I believe the goal of education should be happiness and well-being. And very few schools focus on happiness and well-being at all. It seems like the opposite, actually. Uh. <laughs> We've got a miserable, effed up society. I look at society as middle school grown large. So, you know, maybe you remember how miserable middle school was. I, I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's Trump. Donald Trump is a middle school bully that, you know, <laughs> never grew out of it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because I, I I really didn't like school as a kid. I mean, and it wasn't, I, maybe I got bullied a little bit, but that wasn't really my issue. Uh, I think once I got to middle school and high school, well, I was on the wrestling team and I was a smaller kid, uh, but because I had wrestling friends that were bigger, I didn't really get bullied mm -hmm. too much. Uh, but I, I even then, I just, I never really liked school. Uh, I, I liked getting to see my friends, but I saw them outside of school. So I never felt like I needed that, this building to go do that. And I had many activities where I saw my friends and school. 
school, I, I always felt, I think I had the instinct even at the time that this is, this is not doing, this is holding me back in some ways. And now as an adult, I can look back and say, yeah, I had to unlearn so much of what I learned in school. I had to unlearn uh, basically to be a conformist, to just, uh, just respond to a bell at a certain time and not question anything and just know the answers, but not actually learn things. And I was great at tests. I, I, I aced all my tests. I had great grades. I can't say I learned that much. I just learned how to take tests really well. It's memorize and forget. That's yeah. the whole point of school is memorize and forget. My primary memory is watching the second hand. Remember the old-fashioned yes, clocks? Yes, I do. The, you know, I would wait for that thing to hit. Yep. For me, it was, it was exactly. 2.15 on the button. I think we got out. And all I could do all day, when is that going to get there? Come on. Exactly. And whereas real life, it's like the Star Trek thing where it's zoom, you know, racing through space, all these cool things. It's so exciting and fun. Yeah. Why do we do this to kids? Yeah, and I, I, I can't emphasize to you how much, and I again, I'm not perfect. Some days I mess up and I look at Twitter or look at my email right away, but I, I at least try to, okay, can I at least wait until I've like opened my eyes all the way? <laughs> you know, can I at least get reacclimated to the world, get out of my dream state before I dive into that stuff? Because what you have to realize is, I, I not to get too Marie Kondo here, but you have to ask yourself, like, is this thing I'm about to do going to bring me joy? Is this going to bring me happiness? Uh, is scrolling on Twitter for 10 minutes going to bring me happiness? Maybe I'll see a tweet that makes me laugh or a meme. So maybe more likely than not, it's going to make me, you know, bring some emotion up. It's going to make me angry. It's going to make me irritated and is there really a reason to bring that into my life now as someone for me i'm a i'm a social media person i'm a digital marketer i have a podcast i have to be in these places to some extent but i don't need to spend all day there so i try i do try to segment my time a little bit uh so i actually have time like no i'm not i'm not going to be looking at it at the, the, these hours of the day uh and and just even if you just take 15 minutes in the morning and you start to say, okay, I'm just not going to look at my phone for these first 15 minutes. That's a huge step. Uh, Cause for me, it's in the first, it had been for a long time, first 15 seconds. It was my first thing I would do. Grab the phone. Oh, here's no, oh, here. What's I'm not even out of bed. I'm just in, I'm in this other digital world here. And just, just pausing that for 10, 15 minutes before you get into that at a minimum, it, it's a, a life changer. I truly. Big time. Not until after my morning ritual. So uh, rituals and sunshine, going outside and getting sun. Uh, you know, ultimately, this is quality of life. It's all about quality of life. Indeed, indeed. And uh, one way that one method you are using to try to bring a greater quality of life to people is through this idea of startup cities. And uh, maybe you can just bring us down the journey a little bit of how you first came up with this idea. Or I, I know you first, I think you were the first person to use the term anyway, at that, that talk you gave at Voice and Exit. But uh, I don't know if you necessarily originated the idea itself. But when did you first at least, you know, come to this idea as something you wanted to be out there promoting and actively working on? Sure. Yeah, I, I didn't come up with the idea itself. So to give you some background, um, about 20 years ago, I met John Mackey, founder and CEO of Whole Foods, and he and I had both been from the left. And then we realized that government doesn't work and entrepreneurship creates almost everything. So, um, you know, we both identify as libertarians, but it's not about... Um, you know, it's, it's about happiness and well-being. You know, it's, I would say we still have leftist values. It's, you know, happiness and peace. And, you know, we, we actually, when it, one of the first meetings, we put a bunch of right-wing and left-wing magazines, and the right-wing magazines were all, you know, dollar signs and guns and everything, and the left-wing magazines were flowers and babies and nature. <laughs> we're, we're old hippies, kind of, you know? Right. And, uh, but, you know, completely disillusioned about government. You know, it's just... You know, insane. And so we created a nonprofit to promote entrepreneurial solutions to world problems. And part of this is 
I'd been creating schools. He created Whole Foods, micro entrepreneurship, Grameen Bank, that kind of thing was cool. You know, tech entrepreneurship was way cool. Um, social entrepreneurship was more and more of a thing. And we wanted to make it bigger than that. So, you know, entrepreneurial solutions to world problems. So when you start looking into that, uh, the biggest problem is global poverty and war. Huge, horrible problem. Um, you know, everything that, you know, I'll, I'll be frustrated with American college campuses, but my wife is from Senegal. You know, uh, day in, day out, uh, every moment of every day is worse in Senegal than any of these people on campuses complaining about things will probably ever experience. And so one of my big frustrations with the left is I don't think they care about global poverty anymore. Once it became clear that capitalism creates prosperity, all of a sudden they don't care about the global poor. Is that because I just want to kind of dig into the connection there. So do you think that once they realized capitalism started, you know, solving poverty, they didn't want to talk about it anymore? Is that, is that basically what yeah, it is? Like yeah, that blunt. I, I think that their anti-capitalism is more important to them than is the well-being of the poor. Mm -hmm. And I think it's outrageous. So I'm, since, I'm the, curious of them. since the evidence is just absolutely overwhelming that the, the more freer a country gets, the more capitalism a country has, the, the uh, poverty just plummets. Uh, they can no longer talk about that because then they'd have to sort of have to start favoring capitalism. Well, exactly. And show me one leftist website that actually cares about global poverty. They might talk about inequality. So Oxfam, right. blah, 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 inequality. But I'll give you one factoid on this. Um, you know, Oxfam is always pumping. Look how many billionaires and, you know, how, what percentage of the net worth. Um, when China went from poor to middle class, you know, Chinese uh, average urban wages have gone up about tenfold in the last 20 years. And, you know, if you or I, if our incomes doubled, uh, you know, We'd be excited. You know, Very much so. Yeah. Doubled? That'd be nice. Three times? That'd be cool. Four times? You know, it's hard for people even to boggle, you know, mind-boggling, 10 times uh, increase in wages. No union or, you know, minimum wage, nothing has ever done 10 times. No way it possibly could. Moreover, this is impacting the lives of a billion people. So when you start to think of China and think, okay, 10x increase in income for a billion people. Oh, and by the way, inequality went up in China and the number of billionaires dramatically increased and went up from something like three billionaires in 2000 to something like 400 today. So all those people complaining about billionaires and inequality, hello, I wish Africa could have that much inequality and that many billionaires if it meant African incomes would go up 10x. So, you know, if I had time and to just rant on this, I could rant on this forever. But going back to the startup cities, you know, you look at poverty, right, and it's government everywhere. I, I look at all these governments around the world. Every poor person in every poor country should be furious that their government is basically like a prison keeping them poor. You know, maybe it's an incompetent prison guard. I'm not saying they're, you know, intelligent prison guards. But every government around the world where people are poor is keeping the people poor. So what do you do? I just want to dive in a little bit just to kind of make the, the difference more stark to those that might not understand what's behind it, you know, when you talk about China and how they've seen this increase in billionaires and seen the increase in, um, you know, even the poor have been lifted out of poverty, but we're not seeing that in Africa. Is that specifically because China just kind of gave up and said, all right, go be entrepreneurs. We're going to kind of be hands off even while we control the government with one party and what have you. Whereas uh, most of these African countries still have, uh, even if they're crappy or crappy socialist governments, they're still kind of socialist governments and they're not allowing that same kind of freedom. That, that's a pretty decent rough draft to put a little bit more nuance on this. So, you know, uh, back in 1960, 1970, there were many development economists who thought the Soviet Union would out 
pace the U.S. Um, you know, Paul Samuelson, super famous, you know, founder of modern neoclassical economics in a sense, he actually had curves in his textbook saying the Soviet Union was going to beat the U.S. Absolute ridiculous bullshit. Never trust these graphs, um, like pretty much ever. If you see a graph, just don't trust it. I don't care who it's from. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Meanwhile, Hong Kong and Singapore started taking off. Hong Kong and Singapore, the two fastest growing, you know, we could grieve for Hong Kong now that China is doing horrible things there. But up until, you know, China started to, to attack it, Hong Kong and Singapore were the freest places on earth. Their economic freedom, you know, maybe not in freedom of press, especially with Singapore, but economic freedom dramatically higher than anywhere else and incredible prosperity. So both of them, former British colonies that were about the level of poverty of much of Africa in 1960. Now they're two of the richest places on earth, richer than Britain per capita. Wow. Wow. So, you know, if you look at that, why wouldn't we want every place to be as rich as Hong Kong and Singapore? And hello, China actually went to look at Hong Kong and Singapore and said, what's working? Around 1979, 1980, they created these special economic zones in China that were deliberately, intentionally modeled on Hong Kong and Singapore. And so you think, oh, let's copy what works. <laughs> oh, God, duh. And if you know um, it works, why is it just in a zone? Why, why are you not just doing it? Because I guess they have to admit their whole system is bullshit then. Well, it, exactly. And, and to go, dig into that a little bit more deeply, you know, crony capitalism, even countries where they're, they call themselves socialist or crony capitalist or capitalist, that was an interesting Freudian slip. <laughs> most, most countries have uh, powerful, wealthy elites that keep everybody else down regards to the label. Including, so, uh, including the one we're both in right now. There we go. The U.S. is right there. Um, and so one of the kind of carve-outs, this gets into special economic zones. So uh, early history of special economic zones, way back in the 30s when, you know, leftist governments around the world basically crushed trade everywhere. Um, they managed to, a few people managed to create some export processing zones so you wouldn't totally kill it which meant you could export goods, but manufacture goods in the zone and then export them, but you couldn't trade within your country. And that was, you can think of that as a way for the rent seeker elites to kind of keep their rent seeking um, mostly protected. And I know a guy who is Bob Haywood, former um, president, executive director of the World Economic Processing Zones Association. He said, the way zones usually get passed, and now there are thousands of them around the world, is it somebody who's close to the elite, but not part of the elite. So it's like the second cousin or the younger son or you know, the nephew, somebody who has contact with the elite basically says, look, dad, or look, uncle, give me this little piece of land over here and you can keep your airport concession, your banking concession. Basically, you guys can keep you know, being the big guys and oligopoly and all of that. Just give me this little piece of land with a little bit of freedom. And basically, they do and think, oh, yeah, bunch of empty land. You can ship stuff off, whatever. And then bit by bit, of course, these little islands of freedom take off. Um, you know, not always and everywhere, but on balance, uh, zone, special economic zones have led to broader economic liberalism and prosperity, not only in China, but Mexico, Ireland, to some extent, India, Mauritius, great success story. Um, you know, and what happens is, you know, once people see that, hello, freedom is successful and you can make lots of money there, then sometimes the big guys come in and then gradually they realize maybe economic liberalism a little bit. You know, they still you got the rent seekers forever, sure. but there's some dynamic on behalf of freedom and prosperity. 
Um, so basically, once I learned about this, Mark Fraser is a wonderful person who taught me about the history of special economic zones, said, this is how we end poverty. You know, hello, uh, we're Hong Kong, Singapore, we're special economic zones. You know, Dubai is the most prosperous non-oil. You know, Dubai has almost no oil now. They're prosperous without oil. Um, you got, get all these other places. Mauritius uh, is considered Af an African country, now middle income, uh, kind of right where Portugal is income-wise. You know, Ireland went from basically a generation of farmers in 1980 to now high-tech, successful, prosperous today, and of course, economic freedom. So if we can't pass it nationally, yeah, let's work on a zone. And the next step on this zone thing is early generation zones were just reduced taxes and regulation. The problem with that is if you've got crappy law, um, you know, even bad, even reducing taxes and regulation doesn't do everything. So what Dubai piloted is actually putting a British common law legal system on 110 acres of Dubai soil to create the Dubai International Financial Center. And they actually had uh, experienced, prestigious, respected common law judges. And a con as a consequence, Dubai has gone from essentially no financial center to being a top 10 financial center in 20 years. And it's common law, freedom, and credible judges. So they basically have like a, a parallel legal system with within that zone. Absolutely. It's a really cool idea. So in some ways, I, I do give credit to the rulers of Dubai for first seeing this. And if you go to the Dubai International Financial Center website, I would say it's one of the most customer-friendly websites of any government. And the reason is because they're actually kind of like a quasi-private entity. You know, they're out to get customers. And they know, you know, the distinction is it's still UAE Sharia law for criminal law. Whoa, let's be careful. Whereas it's, you know, British common law for commercial law. So there are points at which they delineate exactly what counts as criminal and what counts as commercial. Because if you're a Citibank executive considering a position in Dubai, you don't want by accident to get into the UAA criminal law system. Right. Um, so that's why the, these sites are very customer friendly. Uh, it's been so successful. Abu Dhabi copied it almost exactly a couple of years ago. Um, and so we're beginning to see a movement of this 2.0 um, zones where they actually put a new legal system within the existing legal system of a country and voila, you get rid of crappy law, you know, almost instantly. It's a bit more complicated than that, but you get the, the vision. Sure. So how, how does one, and maybe you can talk, I know you've been involved uh, personally in, in the, uh, the one in uh, Rotan, Honduras, uh, which mm -hmm. I was in and I spent a couple of weeks there and wow, I'm getting there. 2010, about 10 years ago now. Um, but uh, maybe you can get into a little bit of like what the actual process is like from start to finish. Like, how do you go about, I mean, I guess step one is you have to like contact that government and say, hey, can we do this? And I mean, what, well, how does that conversation, how does that process actually go when you're coming to a government who wants to be a socialist government to some extent, uh, they're not doing a good job at it. And then you want to convince them that we're going to have this parallel, like our alternate legal system within the country. So, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to people within Honduras. There's a man named Octavio Sanchez, who was uh, one of the architects. Mark Klugman was another advisor who had been working with Honduran government. He's American. But there were a team of people within the Honduran government. And I would say some of the need is kind of desperation and enlightenment. So you need a few people on the inside who get it, who realize we're poor because of crappy law. And you need, I mean, sad to say it, but desperation because the country is already doing so-so, you know, they're probably not going to be motivated. And Honduras, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, the desperation was there. What do we got to lose, Actually, right? This, yeah, th th this came about after um, 
you know, they had uh, the socialist government that really messed things up. And when they kicked out their uh, socialist leader, you know, they took him out of government in his pajamas in an airplane to Costa Rica in the middle of the night. Um, the whole West said, oh, this is a coup. And they cut off foreign aid. You know, they isolated them, isolated them. And Hondurans said, look, um, we cannot be dependent anymore. So they managed to get a left-right coalition in Honduras to pass the first version of this legislation allowing zones with distinctive legal systems. Um, and I think there was only one person who voted against it in one of the things. So it was truly a remarkable situation where it is polarized. Uh, Latin America is incredibly polarized. The U.S. is too at this point. But they managed to get everybody on board because they realized the rest of the world was saying F you to them. And they, you know, they want to be independent. So, you know, long story, but they passed this legislation and um, Paul Romer, who has since won a Nobel Prize, came out with a talk on charter cities. Uh, he was kind of a great publicist for this. So they brought Romer down there to talk to the legislature. They actually took the Congress people in Honduras on trips to Singapore and Hong Kong huh. and Dubai. Yeah, they totally got this. In the you see? Exactly. <laughs> Look exactly. how awesome it is here. Come on, guys. Exactly. And so, you know, there are, you know, I'm pretty down in most government people, but there are some people who want to do the right thing. And especially if everybody wins, um, you know, that becomes possible. So, you know, I'm also talking to people in various people in Africa. I've spoken to various people in Latin America, really around the world. It's this combination of is the government ready to allow for significantly greater autonomy for a region? Um, and if so, then you know, the Honduran law is, I would say, exemplary as a 1.0 version. But Tom Bell is a legal scholar, uh, polycentric law uh, libertarian, who has model legislation. Now, at this point, there are a number of different organizations that are providing models. So that if government's ready to do this, um, there are models for legislation. And then once you get the legislation passed, um, a process for allowing private entities to develop this. And as you may know, it's gotten so far that not quite the same thing, but Nevada was talking about yeah. letting private entities. So yeah, we just did a very a, recent a movement. We did a very recent episode on that about the uh, the bill in Nevada allowing basically, basically it's like a tech startup, but like tech companies can basically come in and and form a city. Well, exactly, and just going to the tech side. So I've been talking about the poverty side, but the other thing is, you know. Going to the Department of Motor Vehicles is one of the most depressing things I have to do as an adult. You know, most of life, anything tech, we've got all these apps on our phone. Um, you know, you can order things from things from Amazon overnight. Everything works. You know, not everything perfectly, but again, having been in Senegal and Central America, compared to most places, most of the time things work. What doesn't work? Oh, the post office, DMV, public schools. You know. Right. Uh, you know, anything where government runs it. Probably not so a coincidence. Think, Probably not. Not a coincidence. So, yeah, why can't we have great apps on our phone? Imagine getting updates on your phone when, uh, oh, improved uh, DMV app on my phone and, you know, improved learning app on my phone and, you know, all this. Government should, so I've known some people who are technologists rather than, say, libertarians right. or whatever. They just say, I just want things that can work. And it's clear that you get lots of entrepreneurial discovery, lots of entrepreneurs competing to provide great goods and services. And we will absolutely have order of magnitude better law and governance once we let entrepreneurs do this 
at scale. All right, kitty cats, I got to take a quick little break to tell you about another fantastic sponsor we have today, and that is The Independent Riot, an awesome show hosted by my friend Jim Duncan. He has appeared on this show way back in the day discussing his novel, Blood Republic, but now he's out of the fiction world. He is doing nonfiction podcasts, interviews, just like the ones you hear here. Well, not just like, very different, as a matter of fact, because Jim is really trying to come at things from a, a very broad perspective, a very independence perspective, and that's why his show is called, of course, The Independent Riot. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. You can also watch every single episode on YouTube, including the episode I was recently on discussing libertarianism. He also did a great episode recently on Chinese organ harvesting, and he really has a broad range of guests. Whether he is delving into the ideas of anarchism or uh, what QAnon might have gotten right in the middle of all this conspiracy theory madness, Jim is always doing really, really interesting interesting stuff and at the end of the day it's not right it's not left it's just real check out the independent riot today so how do you go about picking like actually seeking out a specific area like once you've gotten the government to kind of agree to the concept uh like the government of honduras they, they said all right yeah we'll let you guys do this how do how do you go from there carving out actual land i mean are, are you are you buying land that's already owned is it land that's already not inhabited uh how do you actually go about carving a physical oh, area that, out um you know land was taken from people and typically poor people and that's you know a violation of property rights um and it's also abusive and it completely destroys the reputation of the program so absolutely you need to uh, either buy land or start with un- unoccupied land so it's it's really important to be scrupulous in how you get land initially you don't want a government that just says, oh, yeah, we'll find some land for you. Don't worry about it. And then who knows what they're doing to, to get that area. Yeah. 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 And, and in general, I would say the less the government, the less involved the government is in all of this, the better. Ideally, they create a framework and then you go to it. You know, in the case of uh, Honduras, you know, part of this is it's regular real estate development. So, you know, what's what's a good piece of land to develop? And especially if there's some uncertainty around the legislation, you want to have something that would be a good real estate development, even if the legislation fell through right, for some reason. Right. And just on that, with zones in general, um, over time, land values go up dramatically. So Shenzhen in China, you know, 40 years ago was a tiny fishing village. Now it's the world manufacturing headquarters. I've heard estimates that land land value has gone up 20,000% or something, you know. It's just when you start with lands, it's worthless and you make it an urban center over decades, you know, value. But it, on day one, it doesn't. The land doesn't like appreciate on day one. You designate it as a zone, or if so, only a little bit, because everybody's watching. Is the government really going to respect their promises? That is, did they give us this freedom? Are they going to do this or not? Um, and so, it's a gradual process of you know month by month and year by year. But usually, after about five years, like, hey, it looks like this government is really going to do this, and then the land values start to take off and. Uh, you know, so if you're obviously riskier, if you're an early investor, early homeowner, early manufacturer, and you go to one of these places, because there is always a chance, you know, and we've got various ways to mitigate it, mitigate it but there's a chance, you know, exactly how much is the government going to respect this. Um, but once they do, and if you're one of the early ones, boom, you win big time. And I suppose, I suppose you never know. I mean, if, if you, if a government of the day agrees to it, uh, those governments can change and you might get some super socialist president that just says, no, we're not going to allow this. We're going to come in, take your land and, t- and we're going to charge you taxes and, and all this stuff. Well, yes. And there are kind of layers of protection. So to go through a few of the layers of protection. Um, so, you know, in general, not a big fan of structured trade deals. But in the case of Honduras, 
the Central American Free Trade Agreement um, has consequences for countries that violate the trade agreement. And so, and part of this is the after respect contracts. So if we sign a contract with a Honduran government and they violate it, we can uh, ask the US government to impose CAFTA penalties on it. And very concretely, Honduras, at least when I was involved, was the number one importer of cotton thread from the US. Basically, cotton thread goes from Texas down to Honduras, make it into t-shirts and comes back. And then back. it comes back here, yeah, because a lot of my clothes, but, I noticed, oh, Honduras. Huh. But, you know, if they, if they violate a contract and the US imposes sanctions on them, boom, all of Honduras is hit badly. So that's one layer of protection. Going to another layer of protection, um, there are, is government, um, you know, again, not always in favor of government, but hey, if it helps this thing happen, let's do it. There is government insurance on international business. So OPEC in the United States oversees private investment corporation. If a project's el eligible for OPEC, um, financing, then if the government thinks of, on the deal, say in Honduras, then OPEC will pay back the U.S. investors and then OPEC will pursue the government through whatever courts or whatever to try to get remediation for the violation of contract. So there's kind of that additional layer. Beyond that, you can get private insurance. And when I was doing this, uh, we were quoted rates by private insurers of 0.5% uh, of the value of the project which you know, was not terrible, uh, not bad at all. And that's because the private insurers knew that between CAFTA and the government insurance, their risk was actually pretty modest. Um, but it's nice to have the backdrop of private insurance. And then finally there, um, we discussed some high tech things. I don't think you know, we've gone that direction, but you can imagine having a, you know, a cryptographic government where if all of this prosperity is created, say through software, and the government of, say, Honduras or Senegal or wherever uh, reneges on the deal, you kind of turn off the government, nothing functions, and they have nothing to take over. Um, I know, I know nobody, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my uh, anarchist uh, friends are listening to this and saying, turn off the government. That sounds awesome. All right, let's do it. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> and nobody's quite gone that far, but, you know, we started speculating in that direction. What if, what if you created something where it only has value if they allow it to uh, keep going? Um, then finally, I would say beyond all of that, the best thing is just to be good neighbors. If the people in the country love you and what you're doing, give you an anecdote on that. Um, Haywood had been involved in the creation of the first Honduran uh, special economic zones manufacturing, and he predicted it would create over 100,000 jobs, and it did. And even when the socialist government took over in Honduras, they did not touch the free zones, because if you've got 100,000 workers with jobs, no socialist is that stupid. So basically, once you get a constituency, you're safe. Right, right. So what are some of the biggest challenges along the way of actually going and, st and starting one of these startup cities? Uh, obviously, like I'm sure dealing with the government in, in any level is, is going to have its own challenges, but you know, I'm sure this is not a, a rosy process all the time. So what are, the, what are some of the biggest roadblocks that pop up on the way to starting one of these startup cities? So there are layers and layers and layers, just the legal thing. And again, this is where I think it's really helpful for, I would say, ideological libertarians to kind of learn a bit about law and legal system and common law. Because at the end of the day, one, one great thing about entrepreneurs is you have to serve your customers. And so you can't kind of wave your hands about ideology. And we have to have a legal system that works. And so there has to be an integration between, say, the Honduran legal system and the zone legal system. You know, what happens if somebody comes in with a truckload of gasoline and you know, the gasoline is taxed very heavily in Honduras and you don't have a heavy tax, um, you know, on the inside of the zone? You know, do you want people basically, you know, trafficking <laughs> 
uh, gasoline from your zone with no tax out all the time, you know, maybe we don't care as individuals, but um, that, that will ultimately undermine, it'll create enemies to the project and you don't want enemies to the project. So you have to come to terms with, okay, how do we make sure this is not used just to have low tax items come out? Um, you know, sounds trivial, but that's detail. It's detail that people who love to talk about ideas don't get into. Different one was we're very much in favor of land value taxes, but, you know, I'm a Georgist at heart, but, um, you know, existing, the existing Honduran tax system has created certain incentives around the businesses there. So if the existing tax system is heavy on sales tax, transaction tax, import fees, that kind of thing, and you're trying to sell land, you cannot on day one say, look, we're going to tax land very, you know, put all the tax on the land and no transaction taxes. You know, that kind of undermines your success as real estate development. So you have to think, you know, our strategy is over time to shift to land value taxes, but it's kind of a 15 to 20 year time, zone, time frame, you know, to let people change, change their business models. So you can kind of think of all these details about going from one system to another all need to be worked out. Can you dive into a little bit more of the concept of the land value tax? I actually did an episode on this way back in the day. I think literally about seven years ago with a guy named Fred Foldvery. I'm, I'm sure you, you're familiar with him. Uh, but um, I'll reference that episode. You can go check it out in the archives. But I don't recommend really old episodes because I, I was not a very good interviewer at the time. Uh, some would say I'm still not working on it. But uh, if you could just kind of detail a little further what that actually means. I know a lot of libertarians, no matter how we couch it, they're going to bristle at the word tax. <laughs> Sure. So first of all, backing up for regular people, anytime you tax something, you typically get less of it. So if you tax work, you're going to get less work. If you tax capital, you'll get less capital. So if we think that productivity is a good thing, maybe we don't want to tax capital and work. You know, probably not a good idea. Of course, governments all overdo that. But so then you think, okay, um, suppose you do have some services provided. I'm, I'm big on fee for service. So, so schools, that should be fee for service. Healthcare, fee for service. All, everything that can be fee for, for service can. You know, roads, okay. And I've gone into the ANCAP saying, you know, you can have, uh, you know, especially with technology. Right now we drive on private freeways and you get a ticket in the mail. So that's kind of becoming a possibility. But if you have this perimeter and there are certain services provided within the perimeter. I, I will say when you uh, when you get a ticket on a private road, my God, is it a totally different experience than, than when you get one on a, on a government road? Because if, if you want to fight, if you if you miss your ticket or something, because uh, I've, I've gotten tickets on the uh, not a ticket, but like when I uh, was ended up on a private toll road here in L.A., uh, but didn't yeah. have the right thing on it. You get a thing in the mail. It says, oh, you owe this money. All you do, you call them up. You're like, hey, I, no, I accidentally went on the toll. Didn't realize it. Can I just take care of this? And then they, they, even if it was an $80 fine, they'll say, oh, yeah, sure. Of course, sir. And they pay you the $3 and it's okay. Try doing that on a government road with any kind of ticket. Not going right. to happen. Well, and, and it goes back to government should be a service. It should be as efficient as entrepreneur. Exactly. That's a great example. But, you know, governments, uh, you know, within the zone, you would have access to uh, the legal features of that zone, including, uh, you know, a banking and finance system and uh, property rights system, titling system and so forth. And, you know, you could unbundle these, but realistically, on a relatively modest scale, it's convenient to have what are normally called government services provided by an enti entity that might be private and it might have the same incentives as a private entity, but it does need to be funded somehow. And so you could call it a membership fee. HOAs, you know, you pay a membership fee. A lot of ways, things like HOAs Membership are, fee sounds a little better than tax. I like that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're small <laughs> private governments, basically. You know, and, and a lot of people 
bitch and complain about HOAs because they can be tyrannical as well. And there, my whole thing is you should have choice of which, which uh, just like some people think Microsoft is horrible and Apple is great and vice versa, pick your poison or pick your, pick your company. So yeah, going back to the um, land value. So if you have, if you want to pay membership fees, makes some sense to have it be proportional to the land uh, on which you're, there's a case and Georgists don't like this, but there's a case both just for the property as well as for the property plus improvements. If you do the property plus improvements, that disincentivizes improvements. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it does take more you know, security, if, if more resources are consumed by the government, more police and fire or whatever, um, then there's a case for that. So again, I don't want to get into endless ideological debates, but the bottom line is of all the ways to pay for membership fees, to have them proportional proportional to the size of the land or in HOA case apartment makes a lot more sense than a lot of other things. As long as everything that can be a straightforward fee for service, that's best. All right, gang, I got one more sponsor to mention today. That's a great sponsor, a great friend of the show, my man Zach over at Lauren Zotti, Italy. And I'm one of those guys that uh, I like coffee, but I know nothing about coffee. Well, that's great because I don't need to when I've got the fine folks at Lauren Zotti, Italy there to help me to procure fine premium Italian coffees for me. I just head over to laurenzotti.coffee, place my order, use my discount code LIONS for 10% off that order. You really can't go wrong. And if that wasn't enough, guess what? These guys guys are patrons of the show. These guys are real libertarians and they also do the work. They also help entrepreneurs, help other people start their own coffee shops, their own businesses by helping them acquire equipment, helping them uh, get financing to open up their own coffee shops. These guys really do do it all and they deserve your support. So head over to Lorenzotti.coffee and don't forget to use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. All right, so how do we bridge the gap then? Once you've gotten the permission from a government and you've got the land, you've got the, the whole concept laid out, what then? How do you actually get humans into these cities? Uh, are, are there like locals that end up coming in here or are they all people for, that are international sort of expatting into these startup cities? Who actually ends up coming into these places and how does, how does that all work? No, that's a great question. Well, first of all, it depends on the real estate. I mean, in theory, I expect one could do this in Antarctica and who would come to Antarctica? You know, Roatan's a beautiful tropical island, as you know, and so it makes a lot more sense to do this in Roatan. So again, at bottom, it's a real estate project, but a few interesting things. So one of the first, Prospera in Honduras is the entity there now. And one of the first things they did is set an, up an arbitration center. Again, uh, you know, courts in general are a messed up, uh, Latin American courts really messed up. Um, I was actually in Guatemala City once and somebody was pointing an empty building out to me and he said, see that empty building? He said, it's been empty for 20 years. It's been tied up in the courts. <laughs> you know, there's wow. actually a British case where I think there was something in courts for hundreds of years you know, wow. without being subtle. You know, and that's <laughs> who, the who is People even still fighting over it at this point? The, the yeah, granddaughters yeah. and grandsons? Exactly. Of the, wow. Exactly. It's exactly. It's insane. So one of the first things they do in this real estate development, Prospera, again, Rotan, beautiful island, is within the zone, you have access to this these arbitration services, which are lower quality, I mean, lower cost, higher quality, you know, the whole private thing, the private entrepreneurial thing. So that is sort of, you can think of it as layers of governments. So you've got a piece of land, the land itself, real estate development 101, but you're adding value by having higher quality government. Sometimes this is just, oh, we'll have, get the best 
you know, garbage pickup collection. We'll get the best education providers. We get, you know, as, uh, and, and one of the things people don't realize is there's kind of a continuum between private developments, say in the US, and, you know, ultimately a full entrepreneurial city. There are, you know, many hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people living in HOAs in the US, living in privately developed communities. And the Nevada thing, it's all a matter of how much is privatized. Um, the guy who did uh, the place outside of Atlanta, where government was like three people for a city of 100,000, and everything else was, uh, you know, out contracted out, outsourced. Right. You know, that's that's kind of the model. So you Sandy wanna, Springs, I believe it Sandy was. Sandy Springs, yeah. thank you. Yeah, and I'm forgetting the wonderful fellow, but he's involved in this, and he knows how to How did I remember that? I have services. no idea how I remembered that, but, but somehow I did. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to say Silver Springs, but that's Maryland. But yeah, you, you, you basically, there are private entities that supply almost all government services, and so you contract with the best private providers of the best services. Um, and then, say, in the arbitration system, if there's right now, arbitration tends to be big and corporate. So one of the reasons, you know, corporations can afford to pay big fees for big cases. But one of the reasons they created their own arbitration center is so that um, everyday people can afford uh, arbitration. Um, so that was one of the kind of central, you know, what do you do first? One of the first things is we set up our arbitration system. But even before that, there is a law and regulatory system in the zone. And so one of the things is, what is the best uh, law and regulatory system? And one approach to regulation, again, libertarians don't like regulation, but you want to have a positive brand that is respectable. You don't want a haven for, you know, teenage sex tourism or something. Or right, probably people not. that go, yeah, and, no, this is why real estate developers kind of have to be bourgeois and middle class and respectable. Um, but for healthcare, for instance, you can say, what if we accept any healthcare any medicine or healthcare procedure that's approved by any one of 20 countries, say any OECD country. And that, that's a super simple way to kind of house outsource healthcare regulation, giving more freedom than any jurisdiction on earth right now, because, Hey, you've got the best 20 yeah. and it, you know, probably keeps, you know, the, I remember actually seeing some guy who did plastic surgery by pumping concrete into women's butts. If they wanted expanded butts, not cool. We don't want the dude who puts concrete no, into women's butts. Yeah, I don't want that guy. Keep in my that city. guy out. <laughs> yeah. I don't so, want that yeah, guy to you, be my neighbor. <laughs> exactly. You want you want the kind of respectable boundaries of uh, freedom, uh, but that respectable thing is there too. Did the people know they're getting the concrete, or did they just know, hey, we're going to give you a nice butt. Don't worry about what, what's in there. I, I hate to say right. it's Florida, so it, oh, it was Florida that, woman. You know, the course. Florida man thing. Every time you see a Florida man thing, <laughs> yes. this can't be real. Of course. And it turns out <laughs> weird stuff in Florida. So, like, okay, so how does one go about it? Now, let's just say I have listeners out here who are thinking, man, I got to get out of L.A. Maybe this person is me. I got to get out of L.A. I'm living in this huge city. Everyone's wearing masks. Things are crazy. Hey, the startup cities thing sounds like a good idea. Like, how would one go about actually trying to become a member of a startup city or maybe lay the groundwork for, you know, when it's actually up and running getting in there? Do you have to be super rich? Do you have to have like hundreds of thousands of dollars? I mean, how can you actually go about starting this process of becoming involved? No, that, that's a great question. So first, um, Charter Cities Institute is a pretty good source of a list of various projects around the world. Um, so you can go there and the, you know, Prospera and Rotan is the farthest along, but there are other projects on Honduras that are pretty far along. There are a number of projects in Africa that are moving forward. Depending on how much of a frontier person you want to get to go, there are places around the world where there's autonomy, the question, legal autonomy. And then the question is, 
how real is this legal autonomy? So, you know, nor normal person, I would probably stick with something like Prospera. But you know, again, it's it's like moving to a place, an exotic place, perhaps with um, that initially people move to Honduras all the time. Why not to move to a place in Honduras where you have incredibly free market uh, legal and tax? And one way to think of this in a more established way is Cayman Islands is another pilot. You know, Cayman's 30, 40 years ago was just another Caribbean island. And then some people, including the libertarian Richard Ron, said, look, um, we should make this a world-class place to do business. And now, you know, corporations incorporate from around the world. Cayman Islands Healthcare uh, Island is one of the most free market healthcare. They've got an Indian um, innovator who has created low-cost, high-quality heart surgeries in Cayman Islands. So, you know, I think any kind of digital nomad might be interested in looking for the best jurisdiction. And if you want to be more of a frontier person, I would say go to one of these places, buy land early, you know, study it, obviously, do, do, do your due diligence. But if you think it's going to be a good bet, look, you can create a business there with, you know, in the case of Prospera, lower, lower taxes and less regulation than Hong Kong, Singapore, Cayman, Bahamas, you know, any of these places. So why not get in at the ground floor and, um, you know, create your business, create your house, incredible quality of life. And if you're fortunate in 40 years, you'll be ridiculously rich because this place has become, you know, uh, a Singapore. What about, uh, I'm not sure how, how far into this end of the concept uh, you've gotten, but what about, oh, I'm just curious your thoughts on, on seasteading, the, the same kind of concept, but doing it way out in the ocean where it's actually not necessarily under a particular government's jurisdiction. Is that, that's something you've been Involved with it all, or oh, so I was. I was on the board of the Sea Studying Institute ah, so for yeah, a number a of years, <laughs> so I'm deeply in there. Yeah, exactly. And there, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of sea studying. Very enthusiastic. I think the challenge there is uh, on the deep sea, where you're totally free. The technology, you know, it, it, to be comfortable is non-trivial. That uh, oceans and storms and all that kind of a real thing. Yeah. So it's much easier to create a seastead near shore, but then you're typically within the boundaries of a government and you're back in government control. That said, there have been a number, it hasn't quite yet happened, but there have been a number of promising close calls. Actually in Panama, it seems to be happening now where governments seem to be a bit more willing to give some more freedom for something that's offshore, even if it's a ship anchored mm -hmm. onshore. You know, I think, I don't know if it's just psychologically or what, but I think the, I see that kind of nearshore sea studying as sort of uh, the, the next stage of this startup societies movement. I know there was an organization, uh, there were a startup at, right outside of Panama that had, I, I think they kind of hit a snag, but they, they had something set up there. You know, as a, exactly. Basically. That's kind of where it is. Um, but at some point, we'll get some nearshore versions of that, and that will help develop the technology so that eventually right. we can do. I mean, I love the Seasteading Institutes, these super sci-fi cities in the middle sure. of the ocean. I'm waiting for Waterworld. Give me Waterworld, baby. Come on. <laughs> a few decades away. A few decades away. Very, very cool. So, I mean, this is really interesting stuff, Michael. And as far as I'm concerned, anytime we can find ways to bring more freedom, more liberty, more prosperity to people, I'm all for it. I'm all for people trying it, all for people figuring it out. So uh, this is the kind of information I want to bring to people. I know a lot of people have have heard of these ideas. Uh, people have brought it up in our sort of in our circles and our podcasts and, and that sort of thing. But a lot of people, it seems like a mystery to them. Like, how do I actually get into this at all? Uh, seems like something that you have to be you know, a tech millionaire to actually do, but that's actually not the case at all. So I, I'm glad we can kind of uh, lift the veil a little bit, um, uh, you know, on this issue. Yeah, so I would say for digital nomads, they're already looking for the best jurisdiction, and I think Prospera is already on their map. Um, but kind of going to the U.S., the most promising path in the U.S., I think, 
Um, and the U.S. in general, I'd say, is mostly hopeless, but the most promising path is uh, Native American autonomy. So, you know, 150 years ago, the U.S. government signed treaties where most of the tribes had sovereignty over their land. And then they just egregiously ignored those treaties and violated them all over the place. In the 60s and 70s, you get uh, the American Indian movement fighting for Native American rights. And, you know, they made progress, but basically they got casinos and, uh, you know, no tax cigarettes. It's a start. That's not it's a far. start. Yeah, it's a start. <laughs> it's something. But, but I, I, you know, I, I track kind of court decisions, especially Supreme Court decisions that could lead to greater autonomy. The one in Oklahoma last summer was a big one. Um, but one way to think about this, and I actually knew somebody else was working in Wyoming on this, is that if you had a tribe that was sympathetic, their leadership and governance, you know, there were was intelligent. They saw, wow, this is a way for us to be more prosperous. Um, and then it was in a state, and one of the cases for Wyoming is Wyoming is already a pretty free market state. Then you could probably push to the edge of what the Supreme Court will currently allow with respect to Native American sovereignty. And that if you're careful, you could keep pushing it out and you want to have good things. You know, casinos uh, don't have a positive reputation. So we were looking at this is, I think, about as public relations all the time. Suppose you had a cancer treatment center in Wyoming that could only be there because of the freedom allowed on these uh, Indian reservations. And then that cancer treatment was giving good jobs for lots of Native Americans. And then, you know, there, there's some poor kid going to, for treatment leukemia. And then the evil feds want to shut this down, you know. So that's right. the kind of setup you want to get to. Uh, you have a lot better, uh, a lot better argument, a, a better PR sort of argument of, hey, no, let us treat this kid for cancer affordably than maybe, say, a casino saying, just let us be a casino. Exactly. And, and just to the Native American tribes, I was involved in approaching a few of them for a while. And, and it turns out the ones that are rich from casinos are not interested in this at all. <laughs> They're like, no, man, we're good. Cancer yeah, treatment? Exactly. Nah, nah, we're good. Exactly. We, we We've got, got a, a cash cow. Right, right. We've got a cash cow. Um, but the ones who do not are often interested. And so, you know, people want to play that long game because uh, that, I, I, you know, I think the U.S. is probably going to have a fiscal crisis in the next 10 years or so. And then what does the rebirth look like? You know, we're not all going to die. It's just it'll be a really painful period. And ideally, that rebirth will include islands of prosperity and liberty. Um, and the more the you know, Native American reservations can get there, then, you know, maybe maybe, you know, New York goes the way of Detroit and uh, someplace in the middle of Nevada becomes rich and prosperous. Well, Micah, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today and, and digging into this topic. It's it's one I've been asked about a lot uh, from fans of the show, so I was happy to get connected with you on this. Uh, of course, you have a million topics that you could go deep on, and maybe we'll do a f another show in the future, uh, especially about education. I know you could talk about that for hours. Uh, so before I let you go, if you could just maybe take a minute to, first of all, let anybody know if they are interested in the, the startup cities or maybe in Prospera specifically, uh, what the first step should be for them to look at that, you know, maybe that that specific project. Uh, but feel free, of course, to plug away on anything else you got going on. Yeah, I, I think the first thing is uh, Prospera.hn is the website. Go there. And whether one's interested in moving, it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'm working on a school project there. Um, uh, so I, I think that's the number one place. Um, and, you know, they're still accepting investment. They've got a pretty good chunk of capital. So not you know, in a hurry, but if you wanted to be an investor, better yet, go buy land. You know, why not take the family to a tropical island and have a cool vacation? Very affordable vacation, I have to say. But as someone who's been in Honduras, uh, it's 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 very cheap. I mean, it's it, it's exactly. cheap. <laughs> the, the most expensive exactly. part will be getting there. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and also if you're interested, look at the law. I think they present their um, legal framework really well. And if nothing else, that'll provide clarity. So that's the kind of easiest, most middle-class turnkey version. Um, people that are more interested should follow the Charter Studies Institute and see how things are bubbling up around the world. And um, yeah, I, I think actually, I think this is gonna be one of the leading industries of the 21st century. I think there is going to be an incredible amount of wealth created uh, by means of these. And so uh, I, I think the best market for this are young people who are ambitious and wanna make the world a better place and maybe make a lot of money, um, who are willing to work, helps to have a legal background maybe, and or some kind of uh, tech, you know, the whole blockchain thing we didn't get to talk about. Um, blockchain versions of government, but uh, imagine, uh, you know, state-of-the-art crypto wallets connected with um, corporate code, corporate uh, statutes where you can figure out exactly how to create new entities with the security of blockchain. There's a whole kind of sci-fi layer on top of this that we didn't even get into. But yeah, if I was, you know, uh, young and wanted to be part of a cool new movement, I'd look at the intersection of blockchain and startup cities. I don't know if I'm considered young anymore. I just turned 40 this year, but I, I, I'm definitely interested. So I'll be looking into that uh, more myself. And uh, what about if, if you want to plug away? Of course, I know you have Expanse Online. Is is the education institute you're you're involved with? So uh, feel free to let me, people know how they can find that. Uh, I do want to recommend as well. Uh, you did a great interview with uh, one of our sponsors of the show, uh, Mikel Thorup on the Expat Money Show. That's his. If you want to learn all about uh, what Michael's doing with Expanse Online and uh, really just his thoughts on education overall, episode 115 of the Expat Money Show. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But feel free to uh, plug away on that. Terrific. Well, just keep it short, but just like government, I know I, I, I think of schooling, secondary schooling in particular is actively harmful for maybe 80% of kids. Maybe they're 20% are fine. If your kids are fine there, that's okay. But I think uh, it's inefficient, outdated, and there are ways for your child to be happy and learn more in a big way. Uh, and especially if you're entrepreneurial or creative, why would you have your kids in school? Expanse Online is one of many great options and I encourage people to investigate. Um, I also have a bunch of articles on Medium, including are public schools causing an epidemic of mental illness, anxiety, depression, and suicide? I feel like answers, I can guess yes. the answer, but uh, we'll let there people we check go. it out themselves. <laughs> there we go. But it, it's been great uh, talking to you, Mark, and uh, yeah, happy to come back on and talk about a million other things. We'll, we'll definitely make that happen. Make this movement flourish. Thanks so much, Michael. You're welcome. Take care. Yep. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you. All right, Kitty Cats, that about does it for today's show. You got to look into this Startup City thing. This movement really, really has me excited. I am specifically going to be looking further uh, into the community over there in Rotan. And uh, I just got to say, this this concept of, of all the things I've discussed on this show uh, in the past months, this one really has me excited because it's really a real-world example of how we can actually achieve more liberty in our lifetimes. I've, I've discussed this before, uh, that I don't really feel like we can change the tide of the world so much. I don't think we can change, you know, the overarching structure of, say, the United States government. But as Michael discussed in this episode, I believe we can create our own communities and find pockets of freedom. And what a great idea this Startup Cities movement is. I'm very excited to bring that to you today. Uh, that's all I've got today. Don't forget, we've got Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday slapping you upside the head with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odermatt wraps things up on Thursdays 
Days with his deep dive into all the ways you can find more freedom in your life over on Finding Freedom. You get all three of these shows for the price of one. That price is free. Just smash the heck out of that subscribe button. Subscribe to Lions of Liberty and get it all. If that's not enough, you can head over to Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty where we have loads of bonus content conspiracy corner degenerate gamblers bonus live streams extra segments with guests you name it we got it for as little as five dollars a month head over to patreon.com slash lions of liberty help us continue to grow this show and spread this message of liberty until next time my friends live and live free